0: As you're taking your seats, you can go ahead and take your Bibles and open them up to Romans chapter 8. Well, this is my second week back after our sabbatical uh, break, and we were really, really blessed and and grateful for our time away. It was so refreshing, and as I came back out of of the sabbatical rest that we were on, really just asking the Lord what I, I ought to be preaching on before we go into our ministry year launch, I've really been wrestling through some things that really God has been teaching me and especially what he's been teaching me as I've had some time to rest and to seek the Lord in a very unique and and dedicated way. And last week I talked a little bit about the idea of rest and how important that is to our thriving and our health as followers of Jesus Christ and what that truly looks like in a biblical sense. And I think equally as important as rest is what I wanna talk about this morning and next week. This is really the beginning of a two part series and that's the importance of personal revival. Personal revival in the life of every believer is, I believe, often underrated. Revival itself is often an overused term, and I believe it's heavily misunderstood. Many of us, when we think of revivals, we we think back to periods of history where God has done unique works, the Great Awakenings, You think of of tent revivals and mass amounts of people gathering and maybe being converted to Jesus Christ, and there being an incredible revival in zeal for Jesus Christ. And I would say that while God has often worked in history on a large scale, and we would pray that God would do so even more so today, what's most important in the Christian life is personal revival. And here's what I mean when I say personal revival, I mean the reviving or the bringing to life the dead areas in our life. You know what I mean, the areas in our life even as followers of Jesus Christ that seem like they're dead, where there is no real vitality or thriving, maybe some battle with sin or discouragement or fear and anxiety. We all have these. We all have them on a daily basis. Dead desires, dead passion, dead zeal for the things of the Lord. Areas where sin has a significant and ever increasing grip on our lives. Areas that have not been fully surrendered and submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Every one of us in this room wrestles with these on a daily basis. And because this wrestling match is ongoing, personal revival, the bringing to life of those dead areas is incredibly essential on a daily basis. Now, it's important just out the gaze to make it very clear that revival is not something that we create or produce. It's something that we seek from the Lord God Almighty. He is the one who by His grace has brought us from death to life. He and He alone is the one who can provide the source of constant revival in our souls. Revival really is, at its core, the reviver himself actively working in our lives. It's not so much asking God from a a vertical outpouring of more of himself. You see, we are already the temple of the Holy Spirit. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, the Spirit of God already dwells within you. Instead, you need to understand personal revival as an internal moving of God within us. And then from that flows the horizontal moving of God from us into the world. So the question for all of us this morning really is this, how do I seek God's regular reviving work in my life? How do I experience that on an ongoing basis? And I wanna answer that in three simple ways this morning. You can start with this, if I want personal revival, I must first daily remember my forgiveness. I must daily remember that I am someone who has been forgiven. I am a debtor to the grace of God. And really, at the very heart of this concept is really the key to understanding our identity. Who am I truly? How do I understand myself? There are passages in scripture I find myself kind of going to quite often, maybe anchor passages for my soul Romans chapter eight verse one is one of the verses that I think I've gone to most often in my life because it is so critical for the stability I need to enjoy and the thriving I need in the Christian life. It's so familiar to many of us, you don't even need to read it, you just know it by heart that there is therefore, Paul says, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's one of the most powerful verses and even just hearing those words, I wonder if if all of a sudden you're reminded about the strength and the stability that is provided for you in Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful for Romans eight and Romans eight verse one in particular because it follows right on the heels of Romans seven. And Romans 7 is another one of those passages of, of scripture, the text of scripture that we, we sometimes go to often, we read through, especially in the struggle with sin in our lives. Remember Romans chapter 7? It's the Apostle Paul really painting the picture of his battle on a daily basis with sin. The, the fleshly battle for sin and, and the desire to honor the Lord and the Spirit of God within that, that tension that exists. And you know, know, the heart cry of Paul that I, I don't do the things I ought to do and I do the things I ought not to do. And I think that passage, chapter seven, is so central for many of us because as we read Paul describing his life, we really see ourselves, don't we? You're like, yeah, that's me. That's me on a regular basis. I feel like this battle is what's going on in me and that's because it is. And I'm so thankful that Paul doesn't end the book of Romans at chapter seven, verse 24, aren't you? Wretched man that I am! Who will deliver me from this body of death? I love it because he, he doesn't leave that question unanswered. In fact, in the very next verse, verse 25, look at what he says. He says, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And then he launches right into a passage that speaks to our identity, that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, in this battle of sin and wrestling with sin in our lives, we constantly are coming back to the reality of who we are in Christ. Our problem is that many of us live in Romans 7-7. And we live in the passages prior to verse 25. The wrestling match with sin, as we've all experienced, can be a path that's filled with discouragement, a path that's filled with despair, a path that leads to depression. You see, we begin to convince ourselves the more we wrestle with sin and we fail, we oftentimes become so focused on our sinfulness, we begin to convince ourselves that we are what we do. I I am my sin. That is where my identity lies. That's what defines my life and that's always what's going to define my life. And since we often feel that we can never change, that we're never going to find victory, that sin actually becomes our identity. I'm a failure. I'm no good. I'm disgusting. I'm pathetic. Wretched man that I am. And that's the place we live. We feel like we're constantly stuck in the muck of our sin, lacking all joy, lacking all peace, wondering when we're gonna experience what we see so many other Christians experiencing in their lives. We can walk this path and find ourselves further and further away from the experience of God's presence and power in our lives. But I love Romans eight verse one because it pulls us out of ourselves. It pulls us out of our sinful propensity to find our identity in our sinful behavior. It pulls us back into the reality of our identification in Christ. Paul makes this so abundantly clear in the rest of chapter eight, he roots our behavior in our new identity in Christ. He says, first of all, you need to understand that in Christ there is no condemnation. You need to stop living in your past sins. You need to stop defining yourselves by what you've done and you need to realize that you are defined now by what Jesus Christ has done. In Christ, we find our present condition of forgiveness. And God's word speaks of the Christian life so often as a walk, and in fact, Paul in Romans chapter 8 begins to kind of lay out this picture of the life as a walk in the spirit, in obedience to the spirit, and resisting the flesh now that its power and its grip has been broken in our lives. It's important to understand that as we think of the Christian life as a walk, and again, Paul, especially in Ephesians chapter 4, Colossians chapter 3, he uses this metaphor for the Christian life, walking, Physically and spiritually, in the art of walking, what matters most, listen to this, what matters most in the art of walking is the very next step. It's not the the steps before, it's not even the steps way down the road, it's the next step that matters most. And I was reminded of this in a very vivid way uh, yesterday, actually. Miles and I, our our director of youth, um, decided. Uh, almost on a whim to do a uh, Olympic distance triathlon. And some of you are like, oh, that sounds like it's a lot of fun. It's horrific. It is horrific. And especially when you haven't prepared and you haven't done much training at all and you just jump in thinking, well, you know what, This, this won't be that bad. It is terrible. And I remember, listen, I got out, so for those of you who don't know, an Olympic distance triathlon is a one and a half kilometer swim, followed by a 40 kilometer bike ride, followed by a 10 kilometer run with no breaks in between. And I remember just taking, a, you know, my, taking my time in the water. I'm not a really strong swimmer, so I'm like, okay, I just got to get through the water. And, and once, I get, once I get out of the water and onto the bike, everything's going to be better. And then I got on the bike and said, I wish I was back in the water. I get out of the water and my hamstrings and my calves are seizing up. I can barely walk to get my shoes on. And I get on the bike and I start trying to get my body back into a rhythm. And by the time I finished the ride, all I could think about was how terrible the run was going to be. And I get off my bike and my quads are literally seizing up to the point where I'm like, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do this. I started kind of getting myself into a bit of a rhythm, a bit of a run, but I'll tell you this, there's this weird kind of emotional and, and mental wrestling match that takes place when you're doing something like this, because all I could think about was how painful everything else was before, and how painful everything else was gonna be that still lied ahead. And I had to tell myself, I was literally talking to myself, Ian, just take one more step, one more step, one more step. One more step. Don't worry about kilometer two or four or 10. Just worry about taking the very next step. But you see, in the Christian life, so many of us are caught up in our past. We're so fixated upon the pain of the past, upon our failures of the past, the sins of the past, the destruction of the past, that we can't actually see the present moment clearly, and we can't actually live in it with any sort of enjoyment, And so many of us are so fixated on the potential for future failure and pain that we can't actually live in the present moment. We're so worried about what if I don't and what if I never and how am I ever going to get there? We forget, listen, that we're called as followers of Christ simply to this, to walk with Jesus. And spiritually speaking, listen, listen. this is so important to learn. What matters most is this. Listen, I'm just gonna be on the screen I believe. It is the present moment that matters most, not the past or the future. It is the present moment that matters most, not the past or the future. Isn't that such great news? Just right now, God says, just just right now, where are you at with me? I believe one of Satan's greatest weapons in his arsenal is the spear of false condemnation. He thrust it into our hearts and into our minds, calling us to look back at the past, calling us to live in the past, whether that's failures, by the way, or successes. To find our identity in who we are and what we've done. Or he calls us to live in the fear of probable future future failures or potential future successes. Satan loves to talk in long-term generalities. He loves to take a sliver of truth. He loves to put his finger on some area of our life where there are problems, where we struggle, where we've fallen, where we may fail, and he loves to just press on it and dig into it. He takes a sliver of truth and he builds it into a house of lies. He blows it so far out of proportion that it becomes all-consuming to us. But God doesn't look at his children as defined in a general sense by their sinful behaviors or failures. He doesn't stand in heaven and every time we sin, every time we fall, he's not standing there waving his finger down on us saying, you failure, condemnation for you, condemnation for you. No, he defines his children in a particular sense. In a very specific sense, he defines his children by his perfect son and his son's perfect life. He views us, as children, as being in Christ. He looks at us and all of our past and all of our present and all of our future through the lens of who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has accomplished. All of Christ's perfection, all of his perfect affection for the Father, he looks at us and he sees us buried in that. And what he sees is pleasing to him. One of the other verses I I found myself Going back to repeatedly is 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11, and right after Paul has, to the Corinthian church, listed out a bunch of sinful behaviors and sinful people. I mean, just just the the worst of the worst kind of sins. He looks at the, the body of Christ and says, and such were some of you. That's who you were. That's how you used to uh, identify yourself. That's what defined your existence. But you were washed. You were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. You have been made new. You have been completely forgiven. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? That is our identity. God doesn't shout condemnation. He shouts grace. He has dealt with our past specifically. This is why he can do this, because he has dealt with that past specifically, and we walk moment by moment, step by step, every day, every moment, every hour, the past under his blood, the future secure in his hands, we in Christ, and Christ in us. So if your walk this morning is halted by something Maybe some struggle with sin. Maybe some difficulty in life. If you were experiencing some kind of, spiritually speaking, death in your life. That area of your life God points to this morning. He just points to that and he wants to put his finger on it in your life right now. So we're gonna do something right now I'm just gonna ask you simply to bow your heads. Don't look at anybody else. This is not a trick. It's not a gimmick. This is a very, listen, practical application for you this morning, right now. You don't have to wait to apply what we're talking about. You can apply it right now. Here's what you simply have to do, and I don't think we do this enough. Just simply pray this. Pray, God, would you now in this moment by the power of your Holy Spirit put your finger on the area of life, the sin in my life that you desperately want to deal with? Just ask God that. Anger, adultery, lust, laziness, lying, impatience, bitterness, discontentment, drunkenness, covetousness, greed, fear, worry, doubt, pride, And as God reveals that to you and I trust for many of you, he's just showing it to you so clearly. Like just, just let God say to you that right there, that right there, get it quickly under the blood of Jesus Christ. Bring it to the foot of the cross right now in this moment. Repent, lay it down at the foot of the cross and walk again with me. It's so simple and so beautiful, isn't it? It doesn't matter where we are, we can right now be made right with God. You can look up here now. How sweet is it for your soul this morning that in a simple moment, listen, in a moment you can be free from the condemnation of the past guilt and shame you've been living in? How sweet is it to know that God knows your sins and He's paid for your sins by the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ? We live in the present, we live today. Today, today, daily remembering our forgiveness. And if I want personal revival, I must strive daily to remember my forgiveness. Secondly, note this, I must daily confess my brokenness. This is so, so key to experiencing personal revival. In fact, I would argue that this is the key to experiencing personal revival. Right here, this very concept of brokenness is so pivotal. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 66. You're gonna be moving backwards, And again, a verse that is so familiar to many, Isaiah 66, verse two. As you're turning there, God has just reminded his people, the Israelites, of who he is, the, the magnitude of his power, the sovereignty of his being. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool, he says. He's so far above us and the question that should be raging in our minds, if this is who God is, so far set apart, so transcendent in magnificence and beauty and strength and glory, how can we who are so small have any kind of relationship with God? How can we enjoy fellowship with him? And here's what he says, but this is the one to whom I will look. This is the one to whom I will draw near. This is the one to whom I will engage in ongoing fellowship where my presence will be experienced in its fullness. Here it is, he who is humble and contrite in spirit, you can translate that, broken in spirit and trembles at my word, who longs to submit and surrender to the word of God, to allow the word of God to be the governing force in my life. Brokenness is so central to our relationship with God, as Isaiah 66 reminds us, but I just want to remind you that it's central to our own salvation. It's not just central to personal revival, it's central to personal salvation. There can be no relationship with God without the concept of brokenness, and by that I don't mean simply your brokenness, I mean the brokenness of another in your place, I mean, can, you just, can you just remember the words of Jesus for a minute? Do you remember as he s- sat with his disciples at the Last Supper and he broke that bread? What did he say? This is my body which is broken for you. Can you just picture your savior in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he was betrayed where he knelt down and he, he sweated great drops of blood In his humanness, in the agony of what awaited him at the cross, the wrath of God being poured upon him, he cries out in in his human, broken will, not my will be done, but your will be done. And, And maybe most staggering of all, do you remember as Jesus hung on the cross Something mysterious took place where where there was broken fellowship between the Father and the Son as Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, it required a broken Savior to reunite us into a right relationship with God. The one who enjoyed unbroken fellowship with the Father became our substitute. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. And in doing that, listen, he took upon himself the proud, unbroken ego of fallen, rebellious man and was broken on the cross in our place brokenness is what made our relationship with God possible. It makes sense that brokenness is what continues to allow our relationship with God to thrive. Church, I I want you desperately to engrave this truth upon your heart right now. There can be no personal revival where there is no true brokenness. It's not possible. There can be no Personal revival where there is no true brokenness. You see, the word of God reminds us that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God draws near to those who are humble and brokenhearted. The stubborn, the self-righteous, the self-reliant, the self-serving, they can experience No bringing to life of the dead areas in their life. God can't work with that. He must break you of that. Some of you have been holding on for dear life in your pride. And God is trying to chisel away at your stubbornness. Can I just say this from a pragmatic perspective? Some of you have been living in such prideful rebellion. You refuse to be broken. You're so resistant to the idea of being broken because you just want to be right. You don't want to be viewed a certain way. And, and just practically speaking, how's that working for you? I know for a fact you are not growing in your love and affection for Jesus Christ. I know for a fact you are not thriving in your relationship with Jesus Christ. I know for a fact your effectiveness is being greatly diminished in the cause of Jesus Christ and it makes absolute sense because God is opposing you and he wants to break you and when you are broken, you can be useful in his hands and you can thrive spiritually. I love what David says in Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17. He says, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Did you catch this? A broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. You know what he's saying here? David's saying that God is not concerned about the external trappings of religion, going through the motions, putting on a show. God is most concerned about the disposition and attitude of your heart. Is your heart low before him? Is it broken before him? So many of us are so afraid of being exposed in terms of our brokenness and our sinfulness. But one of the things I love so much about reading through the scriptures, I don't know if you've ever noticed this. You know, when you read about the heroes of the scripture, the heroes of scripture, did you ever notice that none of their sin is ever hidden from our purview? You can go through the list. You can go, you go all the way from Abraham uh, to Moses, to go through the prophets. You go through David. You go through David, Paul and Peter, and on and on and on and on. And why don't you see? You see those who have done great things for God, but you see immense sinfulness in their lives. The Bible exposes them, nothing is hidden. Their brokenness is laid bare for all of us to hear about and to read about. You say, well, why why would God want to expose so much of their lives and so much of their brokenness? Here's the reason, listen, here's one of the reasons. It's that the brokenness of man magnifies the grace of God. The brokenness of man always serves to magnify the grace of God. You see, there's no one who's worthy. There's no one who's righteous. There's no one who's good enough. All the heroes of the Bible need the grace of God too. And the second reason is this, that the only true hero of the Bible has a name, and his name is Jesus, amen? I mean, he's the only one who is not stained and marred by sin, He's the only one who has a perfect record of obedience before God? I mean, you couldn't write a book showing us the faults and failures of Jesus because he didn't have any, praise God. You say, well, how do I get this? How how do I make this a regular experience in my life? Well, I, I wanna relate how this is supposed to work to the moment of our conversion experience. And specifically what scripture teaches us about that. You see, Paul in Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 10, gives us a bit of a window into how we are to live in this broken kind of condition, acknowledging our brokenness, confessing our brokenness, and it all begins at the moment of our salvation. Here's what he writes. He says, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. There's two things going on. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, but catch this, this is so important, but with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You say, well, what are you, what are you getting at, Ian? Well, Listen, the idea of brokenness is essentially twofold. It's something that takes place in our heart between us and God, and something that is expressed horizontally between us and others. We need, in other words, a heart towards God and a mouth toward men. So help me understand why this is so necessary. Let me give you one simple reason. You see, confession before man does something in our hearts that faith alone, heart faith alone, can never do. You see, the ability to proclaim what we believe is actually one of the very means God uses to produce and cultivate within us a greater courage and confidence and conviction in the things of the Lord. Have you ever, let me just give you a real real good example of this, I think. Many of us have been in contexts where there have been people who have been antagonistic to Christianity. They just, they just don't want anything to do with it. They mock it, they abuse it, they trash it. And sometimes we're put in positions where maybe the person doesn't know we're a Christian or maybe it's just a simple moral conviction that maybe you kind of feel like, maybe I should stand up and say something. But in the moment, we, we choose to simply keep quiet and what happens is this. Our, our, you know, we, whatever, for whatever reason, maybe we we're fearful of what they may think of us. We're concerned about where it may lead Maybe we don't know how to answer it properly, so we, we keep our mouths shut about our convictions, about what we believe maybe that's so dear to our heart. And in, instantly in that moment, any desire to actually speak and say something is diminished, It's extinguished. You see, we become so focused on ourselves and so worried about ourselves, we forgot about what's most important. But if you've ever done the opposite, you know what happens. The moment you stand up and say, actually, I I am a follower of Jesus. Just just saying those words out loud to somebody else, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. He is my Lord and my Savior. He died in my place. He rose to give me life. That in a moment, listen, it breathes life and courage and conviction and confidence into your soul. This is why baptism is to be a public expression of our faith. You wonder why, when you read through the Book of Acts and people are being saved instantly, they're brought to the waters of baptism and it's out in public. You know, nobody's going like, "Wait a second, Uh, there's way too many people here. Three thousand is a large number. I don't feel comfortable with this. Can we do this at home in my bathtub?" It's not what happens. Why, why, What? here's why. Because it is the means by which people are confessing with their mouth what they believe in their heart. This is who Jesus is, this is what he has done for me, and I need to tell the world And can I just say to you, if, if you haven't been baptized, if you're a follower of Christ and you have not been baptized, not only is it disobedience because it's commanded, listen, you are actually halting your spiritual growth. You're not going to thrive because it is one of the key means that God himself, you, don't have, you take this argument up with God, God has designed this to be one of the means by which we publicly confess with our mouths that he is Lord. And part of this whole process, you you wonder why we do it the way we do, where people stand in the waters of baptism? Here's what they do. They confess not only that Jesus Christ is Lord, at the same time, you wanna know what's being said? And this is who I am. You realize the humility and the brokenness that is required to be baptized and give a public testimony of confession of faith in Jesus? What you're saying is this. I was inadequate, I was a failure, I was a sinner, and I desperately needed a savior because I couldn't do it myself. I couldn't do it. I'm needy, and I'm broken, and I'm weak, and I'm unable, and I desperately needed someone to come down and rescue me. That is the heart of brokenness. Nobody stands in the waters of baptism and says, I didn't really need a savior. I just really wanted to be on team Jesus. Problem is that somewhere down the line in the Christian life, we begin, that, we begin to believe that this kind of confession and exposure and transparency towards others, it's not needed. You know, so while we were comfortable in the waters of baptism saying, look, this was, this was my life. This is what I live for. This is how I was a sinner and God rescued me. You know, somewhere down the line, we believe, yeah, you know what? People don't really need to know that I'm broken. I read this illustration this past week of every person being kind of like a house and every one of us as a house has a roof that separates us between and God relationally and we have walls that separate us relationally from our neighbor from truly enjoying intimacy and fellowship with people the way we were designed to and at the moment of conversion here's what happens the roof comes off fellowship with us and God and the walls fall down intimacy and fellowship between others because the confession has taken place But down the line, many of us try to keep the roof off between us and God, but we slowly begin to rebuild the walls. We're too concerned about what people think of us. We believe if they find out, then it's not going to go well for us. Instead of believing that confession, as James 5 says, to one another, is actually one of the means by which God increases our spiritual life, heals us from our spiritual ailments, propels us in the spiritual life. Every one of us has the tendency to start pretending in the Christian life to be better than we really are. By the way, pretending to be better than you really are, um, that is the supreme sin for which Jesus rebuked the Pharisees. (laughs) Remember? You whitewashed tombs Inside, you're full of dead man's bones. You clean the outside of the cup or the plate, but really inside, it's filthy, you're dirty, you're covered in sin, though you want to pretend like you're not. It was their direct cause, by the way, of their hatred of and killing of Jesus. You see, it was never the open adulterer or prostitute or tax collector, but the religious men who pretended to be holy and covered their inner condition who drove Jesus to the cross. That should be a warning to all of us. They did that. They did that rather than have the truth about themselves exposed anymore. It was the first publicly rebuked sin in the church. Acts chapter five, Ananias and Sapphira, remember that? The pseudo-Christianity, the false spirituality, yeah, the the hiddenness of the sin that cost, cost them their very lives. And just make a mental note of this, that that kind of hypocrisy can only thrive where there is no true brokenness. So what are you saying, Ian? I'm saying this, make it your habit to confess your sin before God and men. Make it a regular practice in your life not to conceal your sin from God or from others. Yes, you need to be careful about who you go to, but can I just encourage you, you need to have people in your life, followers of Jesus Christ, who love you and care for you, that you can walk to and say, look, I have confessed this to the Lord, but I need to tell you this. I need to tell you this is where I've been struggling, this is where I've been falling, and I need your help, I need your prayers, I need your love and encouragement and support. I need you to speak the truth of God's word in my life when I'm believing lies. We need to fight for this in our lives because it's so easy to toss it by the wayside and pretend like it's unimportant to our spiritual, personal revival. Invite God and others into your brokenness. This will foster humility rather than hypocrisy and it will breathe life into the dead areas of your life. If I want personal revival, I must daily confess my brokenness. Lastly, listen, if I want personal revival, I must daily pursue my joyfulness. I must run after the source of my joy. I must be one who is filled with true spiritual joy. I must run to the one who alone can provide that for me. And to look at that concept, I want us to turn in our Bibles to 1 John chapter one. So flip forward. It's one of the last books of the Bible. 1 John Chapter 1, the Apostle John is writing to the church, writing to believers, and he lays out for us right at the very beginning what his purpose is in writing the letter. I'm just going to read the first section, beginning of verse 1. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. He's talking about Jesus. And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And then listen to what he says here. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you. Why? So that you too may have fellowship with us. You see, Jesus and the gospel is the means by which we experience fellowship with God and fellowship with others. And he goes on further. He says, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you that our joy may be complete. Our collective joy, what we experience as the body of Christ, as the family of God can actually be full and complete. You see what he's talking about here? He's saying you want to experience true joyfulness in your life. You want to pursue that. It happens only in our relationship, in that ongoing, thriving relationship with God and then with others in the family of God. The idea of complete joy is the same as what David refers to, I believe, in Psalm 23 verses 5 through 6. Look at what he says. He says, "You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil." I love this. I love this phrase. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Everything he says here is related to, listen, in the mess of life, when my enemies are against me, though they may come on strong, listen, it is your presence that causes my cup to overflow. The knowledge that in your presence there is protection and power dwell in the house of the Lord forever, he doesn't care about the building. He cares about the presence of God that the building represents. And these words and phrases are beautiful pictures of the abiding presence of Jesus in the heart of a believer. His presence that is filling us and spilling over into every part of our lives, but you say, well, that doesn't really happen very often to me, Ian. Like, I I, I don't experience that on an ongoing basis. Yeah, every once in a while, usually after a conference or retreat, I get this overwhelming sense of joyfulness in my life, but then everything kind of fizzles out and it's back to normal Christianity. No, no, no. Listen, retreat and conference Christianity isn't actually normal Christianity. It's an emotional high. But there is to be a stability in our Christian life where we are constantly experiencing the ongoing, filling presence of the Spirit of God in our lives. Isn't this exactly what Paul said in Ephesians 5, 18 and 19? He paints this contrast. He says, look, don't get drunk on wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And that's such a fascinating contrast. And you notice that the signs of being filled with the Spirit. What, what does that produce? How do we know the evidence of that in our lives? Well, here's what he says for sure is evidence of that. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody of the Lord of your heart. Like a heart that is overwhelmed with praise and affection for God. That you burst out and give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The serving and loving of others. The singing of praise. Praises to God. It's so helpful just to remember what Paul's doing that, that contrast. Do not get drunk on wine and be being, by the way, this is a, a present, ongoing reality he's saying should be experienced. Be being filled, you can try that. Be constantly being filled with the Spirit. This is to be the new normal reality for your life. And what he's saying there is so important. You see, this idea of being filled with the Spirit means to be given over control to the Spirit by fully surrendering all. Wine can control us and lead us and guide us, but don't do that. That is, that is far worse than being controlled by the Spirit of God. But it also has the implications of joyfulness, Don't run to a substance to find your joy. Don't run to a person to find your joy. Don't run to anything else. Run to the abundant source of joy that God has already placed inside of you, the intoxicating presence of the Spirit of God. So what stops this moment-by-moment flow of God's Spirit? I mean, I have the Spirit of God within me. I don't need more of the Spirit of God within me. So what stops the Spirit's flow in my life? It's one thing. It's very simple. Sin. Sin. Sin is what clogs the drain pipe, so that the flow of God's spirit can no longer get through, and it is sin that must be ripped out. But you see, our problem is that we mask sin. So many of us are struggling to experience the ongoing filling of God's spirit because we refuse to call sin what it actually is. We mask sin and justify sin by calling it something else. We say things like this, well, it's tiredness that causes me to lose my temper, not sin. We say, well, it's the kid's disobedience that caused me to speak sharply in that moment, not my own sinful heart. We say that the pressures and stresses of work cause us to be anxious or disconnected from our loved ones and our family or to be lazy at home, not sin anything but sin. We say that our difficult or disrespectful coworker, neighbor or spouse causes our resentment, bitterness or anger, not sin. And then we run to a psychiatrist or a psychologist, to people and to pills to try to deal with the anxiety, the fear and the worry, the restlessness and the strain But listen, loved ones, anything that prevents the normal, continuous experience of the Spirit's filling is sin. It's sin. You see, wherever the fruits of the Spirit are absent, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, wherever they are missing in any part or in the whole, so too is the Spirit's filling. The one naturally leads to the other. It is the spirit who conforms us to Christ and produces the joy and peace and life of Christ in us. And sin has always been what separates us from God's presence. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says this, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. Sin has always been the cause of our inexperience with God's presence, of the lack of experience with God's presence. So what hope do we have? Because we're always sinning. We're always distorting that relationship with God, the answer is simple. Here's the hope we have. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our greatest separation has been replaced by our great reunion with him at Calvary. And every day sin disrupts that reunion, that relationship. Every day sin produces a temporary separation from the experience of God's presence. The experience of God's presence, not the reality of God's presence. His presence is within you. And Next week, we're going to deal with a daily practical solution to this problem in more depth. But for this morning, listen, I just want to start that process for every one of us. My hope is to get the ball rolling, moving it further down the field by challenging you and my own heart to consider something that maybe you've never really considered before. And I can honestly say that this has been incredibly convicting for me to wrestle through in my own heart this week as God is just showing me some things that I'm continuing to have to deal with. I believe that most, if not all of us, have never understood that it is sin itself if we cease to be filled with the Spirit of God. The command of God is to be being filled. A failure to do that is sin in and of itself. And you see, in our lives, we tend to run to some of the other more prominent sins that may be hindering the flow of God's spirit in our lives, and that's right, and that's good, and that's something that we're gonna talk about next week, but, but maybe, maybe for some of us, the key is actually first acknowledging that we have failed to be a spirit-filled person, and that in and of itself is a sin against our God. And so for you this morning, it might be the most helpful thing for you to do is simply as we even close our time in prayer to bow your head and say, God, forgive me. Forgive me. I confess, oh God, that I have not been spirit-filled. I have been living my life under the control of many other things. I have been seeking joy in many other things. But God, today, I hear you calling me back to the true source of joy, and that is you. When we see sin as sin and call it sin, here's the hope that we have. Drop down to verse seven in First John chapter one. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And listen to this. And the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Loved ones, just hear these words fresh this morning. I know you know them. If, I know you just hear this so fresh for your heart this morning. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The blood of Jesus cleanses all sins. And isn't that the very foundation for all of our hope, joy, peace, and rest? But loved ones, the blood of Jesus never cleanses excuses. Sin called by some more polite name will not do. And you see a spirit-filled life and the path to continuous personal revival requires confessing our sin as sin and bringing it to the foot of the cross Daily to be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. It is here that we must begin the journey to daily personal revival. Here and here alone can we have our hearts overwhelmed by the joy and hope of guaranteed forgiveness. It is here at the foot of the cross, under the blood of Jesus, that we are reminded that we are covered by grace, that we are met, yes, in all of our sinfulness, in all of our guilt and shame, by the mercy and love of God. It is here and here alone that we are reminded of the words, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So together this morning, I wonder if you would just bow with me now. Look, whatever sin God is pulling out of your heart this morning, can I just tell you that it is such a sweet gift of his grace that he is doing so. And he, yes, it's painful. But it will be so refreshing for your soul. And so as we close, I, I want to encourage you, lay that down at the foot of the cross and be reminded in a fresh way this morning that that sin is under the blood of Jesus. It is paid for in full. today, is a clean slate for you. And I want you to believe in your heart that as you do that in this moment, listen, personal revival is taking place. Because the junk that is clogging the pipe and the access between you and God is being ripped out. And you can be assured that the Spirit of God will flow to you. Father God in heaven, we bow to you God, reminded of what you call us to. God, not, not a every once in a while sort of revival and refreshment for our soul, but a daily, ongoing, continuous revival. We confess to you, God, that that is what we need. That is, Lord, what we long for in our heart of hearts so God, whatever you are doing and whosoever heart you're working right now, Lord, I just pray that you would continue by your spirit to rip sin out and to lay it down at the foot of the cross. And God, would there be such a sweet reminder in this place of what unites us, the forgiveness of our sins, the blood of Jesus. We have a common savior who has bled and died in our place, his body broken so that we might be restored back to you. And what was so gruesome 2,000 years ago is so precious to us. So, Father, would you fill our hearts with joy this morning as we realize that you in your grace and kindness, you constantly, daily call us back to yourself. You offer yourself to us so freely. So may we come, Lord, humble, contrite, and broken before you, before your throne of grace. Stir our hearts now, Lord God not to wallow in our guilt and shame, but to rejoice in grace and forgiveness. We pray this in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.